0: Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to Gem Climate and Development podcast. CID's Road to Gem 23 Climate and Development series precedes and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, which will take place this May, focused on the theme Growing in a Green World. This spring, CID strives to elevate and learn from voices working in countries on the front lines of the climate crisis and will feature important lessons from such leaders through this podcast. This week, we are joined by Ray Su, Consultant in Urban Resilience and Climate Change Analytics at the World Bank. Ray is a part of the City Resilience Program at the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery. She assesses hazard exposure, climate impacts, and social vulnerability by mobilizing global geospatial data and combining it with her insights into urban resilience and climate adaptation. She holds a Master in Urban Planning degree from Harvard University. So climate change is one of the few issues that is seen as a global problem rather than that of individual nations alone, at least in terms of mitigations. So what are the ways in which you think multilateral organizations like the World Bank are helping developing countries achieve their climate goals uh, in terms of mitigation, adaptation, resilience or recovery?
1: Yeah, that's a... Good question, but also a big question. And I think with such a large organization like the World Bank, there's really a lot happening, especially in recent years when the awareness about climate change and the need for mitigation adaptation is really kind of at the forefront of everyone's agenda. And just from what I experienced in the organization, I think there's a lot happening about disaster resilience and assessing not just for the potential economic and asset damages, but also losses to socioeconomic well-being, which is really kind of a paradigm shift when you think about how, like, what are the implications of this for vulnerable people who may not own as much economic assets, but may eventually be hurt the most in terms of their quality of life and livelihoods when it comes to natural disasters. And there's also a lot greater focus in the teams that implement these lending projects at the bank to on social vulnerability and marginalized populations. And these can refer to many different types of populations depending on the country and the location. So for instance, sometimes it could be the elderly people or it could be migrant workers, it could be refugees, or it could be residents of informal settlements. And now I'm hearing and seeing more and more of the demand from the local governments that the World Bank is working with and also from the teams within the World Bank to understand how these populations are going to be affected by climate change and disasters, and what are the things that can be done to alleviate that. And of course, when we talk about resilience and climate change, it's not just a standalone topic, but it really should be incorporated into just all different types of project, even in projects where traditionally the thinking hasn't included climate and resilience, such as, for instance, you know, transportation or building a landfill or local government capacity building. I think there is always space for climate adaptation and disaster resilience and recovery in these areas. And I think the room for these considerations are opening up more and more. And finally, I also just want to point out, especially like from my point of view as a data analytics professional. That the World Bank itself produces and also is a platform for a lot of data and research that's really looking at the future climate impacts on many different aspects like agriculture and urban settlements and yeah, development, etc. So a lot of the relatively new knowledge is coming out from the World Bank as well. Thank you
0: so much for sharing that. So building on that a little bit, could you elaborate on what your team specifically does at the World Bank?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I belong to the City Resilience Program, which is part of a trust fund in the World Bank called the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery. And the City Resilience Program, or CRP, includes three pillars, which are planning, finance, and partnership. And I am personally in the planning pillar. And my work focuses on the geospatial analytics um, about urban resilience and climate change. And a lot of what we do is very upstream of a lot of the projects that eventually get implemented or the dialogues that the World Bank teams are having with our local government counterparts in different countries. So in day-to-day, I might be, my work really, spans a lot of different locations with a focus on urban areas so we have the opportunity to analyze hazard exposure and potential climate impacts in cities all, of, all over the world and have the chance to see how varied and uncertain the climate change impacts could be between say a coastal city in Latin America versus uh fast-growing inland capital city in Africa. And um, yeah, situation can look quite different, even though it's grouped under the very overarching topic of climate change.
0: That sounds really interesting, given the global scale and how you're able to see the nuances across different geographies. And it's also great that you leverage data to take into account social vulnerabilities that are very local to a particular geographical context uh, while thinking about climate change and climate uh, resilience. So what kind of data have you found to be most impactful in driving change and motivating local decision makers to act on issues of climate change and disaster resilience more seriously?
1: I actually realized that a lot of times it's not really about, you know, the data specification of the data sources themselves, but rather what we're able to communicate with the data. And at the end of the day, it is the gravity of the situation of climate change that really urges the action. And I found that the, actually the presentation and communication of data is very powerful in just aiding the persuasion or in helping you know us to really have to construct this argument that there should be a lot more to be done in the area of resilience, urban resilience and climate change. So in my day-to-day work, we actually use mostly global data sets, which there are a lot of, and I was when I, you know, when I started, I was very surprised to find the abundance of just global hazard data. That's open source, publicly accessible, but I had no idea that they even existed when I was a student, like before I came into this line of work. But there's there's really a lot of global data on many different types of hazards from flooding to landslide to wildfire and also a lot about population and settlements. I would say 90% of the data that we work with are global and public which meaning that it's free. And we are able to leverage this data to have a conversation starter about, you know, using a preliminary ex- assessment of potential hazard exposure to the population in a city and also how the climate might change in this region of the world. So to give an example where we do hazard analytics. Of a certain city, we produce a whole a full suite of maps that covers the potential flood exposure, including different types of flooding and potential sea level rise and earthquake, and just being able to map out within the city at the you know at whatever level of detail we're able to have, like this neighborhood of the city might see the most impact from flooding, whereas that neighborhood might be more at risk of landslide or sea level rise or some other type of hazard, just having that level of specificity to just get the conversation started with the local governments about like climate change, because climate change climate change can be such a big overarching and ambiguous topic. But being able to concretize that using these data and these maps is just incredibly powerful. And that gives a starting point And I also say starting point because global data sets are never going to be tailored to local conditions. They're global by nature. And this is also, um, you know, providing these like global, these like rough higher level insights is another way for us to perhaps like inspire more data and like more resources being invested in this area to um, have more localized uh, tailored data to really understand in this particular city, how is like this specific type of hazard going to affect which area and what's the probability and what could be the type of infrastructure that might be affected and the number of population. So a lot of these require a lot more detailed analysis conducted locally by local teams, which is, not, is outside of the purview of my day-to-day work But I think this is just, you know, like sort of a chain of action that eventually needs to happen in order to really address potential climate impacts locally. It's
0: great to know about the publicly accessible data sets that you were mentioning particularly because based on my past experiences, I've seen that availability of structured formal data that can be readily analyzed is a challenge in countries like India and I'm assuming many other similar countries as well. So I I would love to know the sources of data that you typically rely on to build a credible, robust decision support tools, which I'm assuming are much easier for the decision makers to use as compared to the data sets, which might be accessible only to probably experts or people who are familiar with the uh, data analysis.
1: Of course, the data being free isn't doesn't solve the whole issue because there is still a lot of skills that's needed for the general public to be able to interact these data and extract insights from it and I mean, I imagine that for when a person just look at say flooding data, what they probably want to know first thing is how it's going to affect them and their neighborhood, their immediate surrounding. So yeah, that is still a barrier there um, because you know, a lot of data formats, you cannot just like double click it and open it, open it up on your computer, but it requires requires a lot of processing. But yeah, so um. A lot, some of the data that we use come from remote sensing, mostly satellite imagery and different types of data collected by satellite, which are collected by could be NASA or could be the European Space Agency. I may be misquoting the name, but yeah, uh, usually in from the developed world, but the satellite data themselves are global and. We also use a lot of open source data, such as OpenStreetMap, which is crowdsourced data that really contains a lot of information on what other things that exist in which location. So that's helpful in terms of mapping out, for instance, community assets like schools and hospitals and fire stations and where are they located and which ones might be located in a flood zone or might be exposed to extreme heat in the summer. So um, yeah, crowdsource data are extremely helpful in the exposure analysis that we do. And then a third category of data that we use are survey data. And because in a lot of the countries, especially in the global South, data scarcity is an issue, but usually there's still census data that's available to some at some level of, uh, you know, geographic disaggregation that allow us to have a rough understanding of local communities, and the survey data is really helpful for us to understand in terms of like how uh, certain population might get impacted, and of course, in different countries, it has there's like different the census data or other types of survey data have different qualities. Usually, from what I've seen, like Latin American countries tend to have really great and detailed survey data, whereas um, some other countries that may for that, some other countries that may not exist. But yeah, when it does exist, and also in recent years, there's like more and more mapping of like certain vulnerable populations that the local governments might want to focus on. Like for instance, I think there are some countries with a lot of refugee population that already have uh, refugee population data, either from local governments or from NGOs that's working in those countries. So yeah, those data are, um, are used as well. And finally, there's more and more machine learning initiatives popping up in the space of geospatial data analysis. That A, a very prominent example is trying to map informal settlements because there's no global data on just informal settlements around the world. And even the definition of informal settlements could be very tricky and vary a lot between countries. But with some good um, data inputs to start with, then I've seen uh, this being done where, yeah, research groups are able to use satellite data combined with some basic data inputs about like, for instance, this one or two known informal settlements to be able to identify in other parts of the country, like where the informal settlements are located, which can yield a lot of insights as well. And I would say, above all, it's really important for us to have local partners and have their ownership and buy in in this process because they eventually is supposed to be this, you know, empowering tool to, you know, help build capacity at the local level for local governments or local agents to try to um, leverage this data and produce um, actionable steps. And yeah, and therefore it's sometimes when we have the opportunity to work with the local government, then it's, we always try to focus more on the capacity building so that when, you know, because more and more data are always going to come along, but yeah, but it's important that the local counterparts are able to continue to engage with all of these data, all of the new data that's coming out every single day.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure it would be helpful for many students and professionals who might be looking for sources of data that they can build upon for their research and analysis. On the point that you mentioned about local stakeholders using data to produce actionable steps based on the information that they receive, I'd love to know a little more about what is the role of other stakeholders in the ecosystem both internationally as well as locally within the countries that you work in how can they strengthen the work that you have been doing
1: I think there are there's a lot of space to contribute on all different levels and for in terms of my work because we primarily make use of global data however when local data are available that's always a big plus just for us to be able to understand in a much better level of detail and better accuracy the type of hazard exposure that exists in the city and yeah and the impacts on the specific people living in that city so more local data is always good so and that has to you know really come from the local level and honestly, it's not, sometimes the cost can be a little bit prohibitive, but other times, for instance, conducting a flood assessment for a city, it may actually be not as costly as one might imagine. And so, yeah, it just being able to have that data, you know, being produced at the local level in more and more cities around the world, I think that would really help governments sort of identify which places they need to take action and potentially just to throw out some example, like build green infrastructure, use other nature-based solutions or fortify people's resident residences and yeah, build other flood defense mechanisms. So that all requires very localized data. So that would be something that I think will really speed up the progress of um, adaptation and resilience and, also, in, in terms of capacity building at the local level, yeah, that's just something that I think it's a perpetual theme uh, when we are discussing the local governments in the global south to have the know how to like engage with these data and potentially also to translate it in a way that really makes sense to the local residents. Because I think at the level of the multilateral organization, there is definitely going to be a lot of nuances and locally specific conditions that's a little bit abstracted at the level where I'm working at. And so just being able to bridge the gap and to like translate these data insights from the global data to a local level and especially to be able to communicate such, such a complicated and uh, just convoluted topic like climate change in a way that's not just accessible, but also actionable to local residents. I think that translator role will be very crucial. And finally, there's just more and more, in like on the sort of international or in the private sector, there's more and more new technology coming out in the field of remote sensing that um, I've personally seen. That's able to just deliver more data insights into the on the ground conditions and take the example of the recent flooding in Pakistan. And because for something like for a, a disaster of that scale and to be able to respond to it effectively and with a high level of accuracy. A lot of data is required to know like exactly which areas are impacted and whether the water is still there and how long it has been there and which buildings may be affected. And uh, for a lot of these information that is now, you know, with the newer satellite technology that is now becoming less of a um, sort of unknown, like more clear to the responders and to the policymakers who are making, acting for disaster recovery. Um, I think that is something that's pretty exciting and is just um, the, a lot of innovations are also happening in this field.
0: On your point regarding translating data into action and on-ground change, I had another question, which is that there is this growing belief that climate action needs to be integrated with other programmatic areas or points of entry since climate is a systems issue that impacts all social issues be it urban planning or health and i know that like me your background has also been in urban planning does your current work take into account such interdependencies in the way that you build data and use it
1: for change because urban planning itself is such a broad field there is a lot of space to yeah really integrate climate insights about climate change into just different aspects of the practice and I would also say that actually in most of my work climate change itself and climate change and disaster resilience is not dealt with as this silo it's not a separate issue but rather the interest and demand from the different teams is to really understand how it just permeates every aspect of life and how it could be addressed when when they're implementing other types of projects so for instance um we've had this project I've had this I've worked on this project where i was able to analyze for just different Sort of things that's been already being planned, such as building a bus station in this location or building a landfill or a government building in that location or open air market. How all of these things can be informed by what we know. What we, yeah, what we know about the potential flood damage that could occur in this. Place or the uh, urban or the level of urban heat or any other you know type of hazard that might be salient in that location, and how knowledge about these things can be incorporated to enhance the resilient resilient design of these existing projects that's already going to be happening. So yeah, I I do think that there's a lot of intersection in you know, between climate, between like agricultural development, between uh, in architecture, between all of these fields, and yeah, I I feel like my work is more sort of deals more with the just one is analytics that feeds eventually into these project design, and another part of my work is also has more to do with research and producing new knowledge and new insights that could perhaps seems a little more academic for now, but hopefully eventually speaks to larger global trends and yeah, how these trends might reveal you know, just exactly how climate change may impact different aspects. So for instance, one of the papers that I'm working on is how urban expansion um, could affect agricultural production in the future. And I've also looked at how flood zones overlap with urban development in the in the past thirty years, and whether there's a trend of urban areas around the world building into flood zones. So I think a lot of these you know these topics are very interdisciplinary, very intersectional, and it could be applied to just many different fields. Whether it's urban planning officials on the city level or on the provincial level, or could be you know just even like for local farmers or or to like global food supply chain professionals so and I think it's it's definitely um very intersectional
0: yeah totally agree that there are multiple ways in which different disciplines including planning can drive more sustainable equitable living environments especially for those most impacted by climate change um and on that note I'd like to close out with a related question, what would be your advice to students or young professionals who are passionate about leveraging data to address issues of climate change?
1: Yeah, so I think one thing that, just speaking from my personal experience, one thing that really surprised me since I started working in the field of resilience and climate change is just how uncertain and varied the Uh, climate change impacts really are. So there are a lot of, or in more and more climate models coming out that deals with different aspects of the climate, could be temperature or precipitation or extreme precipitation or cold felt, just all of these different aspects of climate and how it manifests locally. And I was really struck by just how different that could be. Like in one city, Maybe climate change means more intense precipitation, but maybe their temperature may not change so much, even though everyone associates climate change with rising temperatures. Whereas in another city, maybe this could mean higher temperature and longer droughts and a scarcity of the water supply that could really jeopardize the basic services of the urban residents there. And it's just... Extremely different in different areas of the world, and I think that for someone who aspires to work in the field of climate and resilience, it's extremely important to understand the uh, specific local impacts of climate change, especially when one is working at a local level, and really understand, you know, what are the potential scenarios. Because in climate change, there's, of course, there's the shared socioeconomic pathways, which are the ways, uh, one of the ways that IPCC is using to really gauge the, you know, the potential possibilities or trajectories of climate change and global development that could occur in the future and help us like think about, yeah, what well, just what are the different things that could happen and under those scenarios, what is the associated climate change? And so, yeah, well, like what climate change will look like under those scenarios. And so I think it's important, even like, of course, on the local level, but even when one is acting on the global level, it still eventually comes down to like mm-hmm. local impacts to impacts on like very specific populations around the world, especially vulnerable populations. So I think that is something important to keep in mind. And then, of course, because potentially because I'm such, um, Focus, I'm so focused on quantitative analytics and just n- working firsthand with all the different data that's coming out in this field. It's, I also find it very important to have a sound scientific understanding of uh, some of the basic mechanisms of climate change and uh, where are all those uncertainties coming from and how to really correctly interpret those uncertainties because i think there are with the abundance of data it's also really easy to misunderstand and misinterpret uh, what the data might be telling us and then convey the an incorrect or inaccurate message to the public and that could be sometimes be dangerous and so i think just having some a basic understanding of you know how the mechanisms of climate change and of, of climate models and be careful when dealing with data to really know, like, what is, what are the caveats and what, what this data is really trying, really saying and how to derive insights without extrapolating too far, which is also a very, you know, it just happens all the time. And yeah, I think these are the things that I think I, I now know that is really important that I didn't know when I just graduated from grad school from the urban planning program.
0: Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you for taking out the time to share all these wonderful insights with us. I'm certain that our listeners got a lot to learn from your work at the World Bank in building data systems for countries to advance our climate goals and strengthen the global response to climate-related risks and disasters. So really grateful to have had you here with us. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. To our listeners, you can
0: find more information about the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery's work at www.gfdrr.org. You can also learn about the Center for International Development and our research and events at cid.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back soon.